So, like Rob said, the main thing today is the adventure never happens for those whose primary goal is to play it safe. Uh, I remember teaching my oldest to dry, ride a bike, and, uh, and, and uh, she was riding around and training wheels. She was about five years old or so, and I said, it's about time that we take off the training wheels. And she said, no, I don't want to take off the training wheels. I said, well, we're taking them off. So I got the ratchet and, and socket and took them off, and she protested and, 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 and basically started crying, had a meltdown uh, that I was taking the training wheels off. And she said, I'm never riding this bike again. And being the wonderful, compassionate father I am, I said, well, I'm throwing these away. And I threw the, the training wheels away, and I said, we're never putting them back on. And she protested and hemmed and, and, and hawed and, 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 and threw a fit. And then she got on her bike. And as parents know, usually within about a minute, within a, within a minute, she was riding her bike. And she's proud of herself. And, uh, and, and I, I, as her dad, I knew she could do it. Uh, see, I had a different perspective than she did. I was 30 years old. And I knew that she could do it. I knew that most people ride without training wheels because I'd seen that. She had a five-year-old perspective. She didn't know that. It wasn't her fault, but she was five. And, and she just didn't know what I knew. And so what looked like her dad being mean, cold, cruel, unfair, unfair. Um, by the way, parents, I get ready to hear that word a lot. Okay? Just letting you know. Unfair. was moving her into a new world where she was going to be able to master a new skill. And, and God has a different perspective than we do on life. He's God, after all. He knows a lot more than we do. And he has a different perspective. We have the five-year-old perspective. We are not omniscient. We don't know everything. And he has been around since the beginning. So he has a lot of, a lot of perspective that we don't. And a lot of times, what looks like cold and cruel and unfair to us looks something completely different to God. Very, very different. See, see, if it had been left up to my daughter, she never would have taken the train wheels off. She'd be 20 years old today riding with 20, training wheels. And, 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 that's, and, and so, so the question is, are you a Christian who's never taken the training wheels off? Maybe so. And if you are, I would like to suggest that you are missing out. Big time. Uh, it's so much more fun riding a bike without training wheels, and it's so much more fun in life trusting God with, uh, where, to take us where we've never been, doing what we never thought we could do. Matthew 9, 36 through 38 says this. When he saw the crowds, meaning Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest field. What Jesus is saying here, it really, we have to understand this. What Jesus is saying here is that it's not a harvest problem. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says. It's the workers that are few. The harvest is not few. It never has been and never will be. It's the workers that are few. And so what does Jesus tell us to do? He tells us to specifically pray that God would send workers into his workers' field. Now, this is where Jesus likes to start playing games. This is where he likes to upend things. So we pray that the Lord will send workers into his harvest field. And Jesus says, okay, I'm sending you. 
And that's when you're like, whoa, hang on a second. I, I, I asked you to send workers. And he says, well, I am. I'm sending you. And, and, and see, following Jesus isn't safe. Never has been. And it never will be. See, when Jesus saves us, we have to understand this. When Jesus saves us from our sin, when we become Christians, he does two actions, not one. He does two actions within us. He saves us from sin to his work. He never does one without the other. He never ever just saves a person from their sins and leaves them there. No, no, no. He loves us way too much to do that. He saves us from our sins to his work. He never does one without the other. He does them simultaneously. When Jesus went willingly to the cross, when he went to the cross, died, was buried, was resurrected. When he, when he did that, his resurrection canceled out every, wrong, every sin, every wrong thought, every wrong action, every wrong thing you've ever done and ever will do. That is a deep and stunning truth, and you can spend the rest of your life trying to figure that one out. Your past is completely gone. Your future's eternally set. Your present makes sense. You are cleansed. You are made right, declared innocent on all charges. And only a white congregation could hear that and not applaud. You know, come on. That, that, is, that, that is what Jesus has done for you. I, I think that we, he deserves some praise for that. I'm, 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 amen. He has saved you from sin. And that's a deep, stunning truth. He's also saved you to the work of the kingdom. I, I don't know why American Christianity has sought to separate the two as if they're two different things, that he saved you from sin to the work of the kingdom. I don't know why American Christianity has done that, but it has, with some amount of success, I might add, because there are people in here today that think the only thing Jesus has ever done for you is saved you from your sins. That's not what he is, and that's not all he has done. Um, most of the Bible, just remember this, most of the Bible is not about you being saved from your sins. Most of the Bible is about what people who have been saved from their sins have done once they're saved. Go read the Bible. And if that's what most of the Bible is about, maybe that's what most of our lives should be about. But there, there um, uh, well, here it is. Jesus saved you from your sins to the work of the kingdom. Does both, never one without the other. And, uh, and I, I think the reason they've done that is because the first one is very safe, saving us from our sins. We're saved, that's very safe. The second one's dangerous because it calls us to do things that maybe we don't wanna do or think that will we'll ruin our lives or something like that. I've heard all the excuses. Okay, Mike Iaconelli, who's known as the father of youth ministry, uh, wrote the following about how the church has tried to make following Jesus safe. He writes this, unfortunately, those of us who've been entrusted with this terrifying, frightening good news have become obsessed with making Christianity safe. Um, uh, we've defanged the tiger of truth, we've tamed the lion, and now Christianity is so sensible, so accepted, so palatable. Who's afraid of God anymore? We're afraid of unemployment, we're afraid of our, in our cities, we're afraid of the collapse of government. We're afraid of not being fulfilled. We're afraid of AIDS, but we're not afraid of God. I would like to suggest that the church become a place of terror again, he writes. A place where God continually has to tell us, don't fear. A place where a relationship with God is not a simple belief or doctrine or theology. It is a burning presence within us. 
uh, in our lives. I'm suggesting the tame God of relevance be replaced by the very God whose very presence shatters our egos into dust, uh, burns our sin into ashes, strips us naked to to reveal the person within. The church needs to become a glorious, dangerous place where nothing is safe in God's presence except us. Not our, uh, nothing, including our plans, our agendas, our priorities, our politics, our money, our security, our comfort, our possessions, our needs. We believe in a God who wants all of us, every bit of us, and he wants us all the time. He wants our worship and our love, but he wants us more than anything to trust him. We have to be more in awe of God than we are of our government, uh, more in awe of God than we are of our problems, more in awe of God than we are about our beliefs about abortion, more in awe of God than we are in our doctors and agendas. Our God is perfectly capable of calming the storm or placing a smack in the middle of it. Either way, he writes, we will be speechless and trembling. Our world is tired of people whose God is tame. It's longing to see people whose God is big and holy and frightening and gentle and tender. And ours, a God whose love frightens us into a strong, full arm where he longs to whisper those terrifying words, I love you. Jesus called for us today to take off the training wheels and follow him, warning it's not safe. What is it safe? When we follow Jesus, the first thing that's not safe is our rebellion. Our rebellion is not safe in the presence of Jesus. John 2, 13 through 17, I love this. I love this. Uh, it talks about with Jesus at the temple. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords. A whip out of cords. You hear that? Yeah, a whip. He made a whip out of cords, and he went after people with it. Dang, that's not the Jesus that I heard about when I was in Sunday school, but that's what he did. He, he drove all from the temple course, both sheep and cattle, scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, if you guys know, in the Old Testament, before Jesus died, the temple was the place, the dwelling place of God. That's where God lived. He lived in the temple. And as, and as after the death, burial, and resurrection, that was no longer the dwelling place of God. And with the new covenant, with Jesus' resurrection, it clearly states that the new temple is here. This is the dwelling place of God. And I don't know if you all grew up in church and maybe you were a little kid and you were running around in church and some well-meaning, wonderful person pulled you aside and said, what? Not in God's house. Exactly. Okay, as wonderful as that person is, they're wrong. Okay, God does not live at 101 North 1st Street. This is not God's house. He does not have a room. He does not have a bedroom up there. And he he, he doesn't live here. He lives here. So let's take a look at Jesus' actions in the temple with the actions he does in here. Yes, Jesus comes in here like a bull in a china shop and scattering the things we've set up in here, scattering and overturning the things that we've put here that have no business being in God's temple mercilessly yelling to us, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house 
into a market. Wow. And just like the temple in Jerusalem, all of us allowed ourselves to be corrupted. We've put things in here that have no business being in here. And those things are not safe in the presence of Jesus. I, uh, I tried to think of some things that maybe I've set up in God's temple that don't belong there. Maybe some beliefs, maybe some actions that I've elevated to the level of biblical quality. Churches deal with them all the time. And the one that really hit me, I'm sure you all can think of several, but one that really hit me was this. I hope I don't step on any toes here. Um, during the worship wars of the 1990s, when I was in college and seminary, if you all weren't in church back in the 90s, it was the transition from traditional music to what's more contemporary. The pipe organ and, and everything was, was, there was a new uh, thing with the Shout to the Lord album from Hillsong. Uh, it, it, it went over like Nirvana's uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, destroyed my beloved hair bands genre with one song. Okay, and I'm still waiting for them to come back, thank you. But uh, with Shout to the Lord came out, all of a sudden, it launched off a whole new music thing in the church. And they were called the Worship Wars, and people were, were angry. They were leaving churches over the style of music, pipe organ, hymns, or choruses, this kind of thing. And, um, and I, I was young at the time, and it was very easy for me to criticize the folks that wanted the pipe organ and the old rugged cross every Sunday. It was easy for me to say that, that, um, that they, they were out of touch, that they were going to lose a, a young generation. It was easy for me to say that because I was pushing for the style of music that I like. I like rock and roll. I like guitars. I like bass. I like drums. But what would happen? What would I do if the music changed again? Are we so foolish to think that guitars and bass guitars are going to be here forever? No. No, one of these days, an electric guitar is going to be seen like a pipe organ. Like, man, that is so 2018. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, that, that's what people are going to say. And people like me that, that love, you know, Hillsong and Elevation Worship and everything are going to be seen as dinosaurs. What happens? I want to ask you, Catalyst Christian Church, what happens if Hillsong and Elevation and Chris Tomlin and Lauren Daigle and all the people that are putting out all the current music right now, what if they are pushed to the side and a generation of, of hip-hop and rap artists come in and start making waves and churches start doing hip-hop and rap for their Sunday morning service, their Sunday morning music. I don't particularly care for that kind of music. It's not what I choose to listen to. More importantly, what if teenagers and 20-somethings were flocking to those churches and they were getting saved? What if that type of music was what it took to reach a new generation? What would I do? Would I protest? Would I say to them what the uh, traditional pipe organ people said to me? Or would I realize that nothing is safe in the presence of Jesus except me? Not a music style? Nothing. What have I set up in here that I've described the sacred that Jesus would overturn and say, get these out of here? How dare you turn Father's house into a market? Second thing that's not safe when we follow Jesus, and I love this, this fires me up, is our calling. Our calling. We already read Matthew 9, 36-38. He said, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Therefore, pray 
Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into this harvest field. Our calling, and everybody has one. People say, no, I don't have a calling. No, you have a calling. Maybe you just haven't discovered it yet, but you have a calling. Remember, you've been saved from sin to the work of the kingdom. Your calling is where your passion meets a need, where your passion and your gifting meets a worldwide need. It may be here in America, maybe overseas. One thing is for sure, every person has a calling from God, every person. And you're uniquely equipped with abilities and desire. When we surrender to Christ, a strange thing happens to us. He changes us. He works within us. See, we're facing two barriers to our calling. I don't know if you know, if you know this or not. We're facing two barriers, and here's what they are. Here's what the barriers to your callings are. One, you don't think you can do it. And two, you don't really want to do it. Those are the two things in the Bible that are stopping you from doing what God wants you to do. You don't think you can and you don't really think you want to, okay? Summer before, my freshman year in high school, I was wanting to play soccer at Henry Clay in Lexington. It's a good program, you had, it, 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 it very demanding. Now, I don't know if anyone remembers the summer of 1988, but it, there was a drought. It seemed like it was 100 degrees every day for three months. It was, it, it, it was it, there was water rationing, uh, my neighbor across the street was fine for watering his lawn. Uh, a preseason for soccer started on July 1st. It was 100 degrees by 7.30 in the morning. And, and uh, we didn't have heat index rules. The adults didn't care about us back then. No heat index rules. They didn't cancel practice for anything. Okay, so not only was extreme heat facing us, we had another monster facing us. It was the dreaded 2.7. The dreaded 2.7. Every person... Right for Henry Clay had to run 2.7 miles unless at 1830. I wasn't a great runner. I was okay runner, but wasn't a great runner. It wasn't my forte. And this wasn't on a track. It was up and down hills in the neighborhood around Henry Clay. When I heard about this, I was barely 14 years old. And I remember thinking two things. Number one, I don't think I can do this. Number two, looking at the heat and the exhaustion and everything, I don't really want to. And that's the way a lot of people look at, when, at their calling from God. I don't think I can do that. Second, Lord, I know what happens to people that do that. I'm not sure if I want to. And that's what's going on in every heart right now. That's steps in. In Philippians 2, 12 through 13, he says this. Uh, uh, Paul writes this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. He changes your ability to, to he gives you the ability to do it, and he gives you the desire to do it. That's what Philippians 2, 13 says. For those who are surrendered to Jesus, he works in you changing you from the inside out. He gives you the ability to pursue your calling and gives you the desire to pursue your calling. When we quit playing it safe and we throw open their doors to our heart and say, Lord, there's no place I won't go. There's nothing I won't do. Your will is my command. I am yours. That's when God does this. He goes, all right. Now you know what it means to be a Christian. You guys, the Holy Spirit has really changed me over the years. I cringe some of the things I believed and said over the years. God has really changed me. If, if you're the same person that you were 10 years ago, I want to suggest that maybe the Holy Spirit hasn't, uh, hasn't been working on you or you haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to work in you. Uh, there are things that are truly wrong in our world and they need the church and more specifically Christians to address them. I didn't used to think along those lines. When I was a young Christian, young man, I just thought that as long as we got everybody saved, everything would be fine. 
Every, 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 as, long, as long as everybody got saved, everything would be okay. That's what I thought. And then I looked at myself and I realized I'm saved and I'm not okay. I don't know if you've ever done that. But guys, the, the, you can preach Christ to an orphan. And you can get an orphan saved, but they're still an orphan. Any parents? Uh, you can preach Christ to an addict. And, and they can become saved, but they're still addicted. They need help. Uh, you can preach Christ to an abused spouse. And you can get that abused spouse saved, but, but, but they're still in an abusive re- relationship. They need help. See, that's why God gives us a calling to bring his kingdom, his will, wherever we go. And a lot of times he has to change us to show our calling. If you can believe this, I used to hate mission trips. Those of you all that have known me the last 12 years know that I'm all about missions. We're taking seven mission trips this year because I believe in them so much. I used to hate them. You want to hear some of the things I used to say? These are some of the things I used to say. I, I, I said they're ineffectual. They're vacations. They are photo ops for Americans who want to feel good about themselves for a week. Uh, there they were people here who needed ministry. Why are we going all the way over there when people here need ministry too? Now, now I said it so holy when I said that. I wasn't doing any ministry to anyone here. But it sounded great when I said it. It sounded very prophetic and very holy. And I was able to puff my chest up when I said it. Because I liked saying, well, I don't need to do that. There are people here that need ministry, although I wasn't doing either. And I said as much until I actually went on a mission trip. Most of the people, myself included, that say those things never actually been on one. God worked in me to both will, to act in those areas. He had to do a lot of changing within me, believe me. Believe it or not, I didn't particularly care about orphans when I was younger. It's not that I hated them, I just didn't really care. I didn't see the need to. I didn't see the need to until I became a father. I realized the impact that me as a father, that I as a father had on my children and my wife and wonder what would happen to my children if we weren't here. And um, God worked within me, both the will and the act, to accomplish his good purpose, not only to care for orphans, but to try to reach fathers. If you would have told me 15 years ago that I, in 2020, would be beginning my eighth year going into jails and teaching fathers how to be fathers, caring for orphans by trying to get their fathers back into their lives. I'd have told you, I've never been to a jail. I didn't even know where the jail was. I had no desire to do that whatsoever, but the Holy Spirit began to work to change me, to give me the ability and the desire to do that. See, guys, that's what the Holy Spirit does when you lay your heart wide open. You say, God, use me. Use me. I am yours. He begins to give you the ability and the desire to do what he wants to do through you. And so it's not so much what you have, it's how available you are to the Holy Spirit of God that will determine the amount of, of kingdom work he's able to do through you. Yes, our goal is to bring everyone to Jesus so that all may be saved, but that's not gonna make everything okay, y'all. Okay, there are still orphans that need families. There are foster children that need, need forever families. There are people financially in debt that need a way out. We can, we can preach Christ to people financially in debt, but they're still in debt. They need They need uh, uh, somebody who cares about helping people financially to get in their lives and disciple them. Uh, There are all kinds of issues, addiction, domestic violence, racism, which is rarely addressed uh, in the church that need the church to address them. 
And our calling, when God gets a hold of you, is where your passion meets that need. What is the biggest problem in America today? Is it really money? Is it really? We're the most prosperous, wealthiest people that have ever existed in the history of humanity. I say the largest issue facing Americans today is not finances. It is purpose. Meaninglessness. There's anxiety through the roof. There's depression through the roof. There's our, our, our society is, is, has more mental issues than any other time in, in, in our history. And I'm not saying that, that, I'm not saying, I'm not judgment or anything like that because there are legitimate things. But I would argue, I would suggest that purposelessness and meaninglessness is driving a good part of that because we have no idea what we're here to do. We have no direction in life. We have no purpose, no way to know that we're winning in life. Well, God is here to change that. You have a calling. It's just the amount of surrender in your life to determine how much he's able to give you that. And when you approach God with arms wide open, saying, I'm yours, no excuses, nothing withheld, nothing off limits, no thing I won't do, no, no place I won't go, that's when you begin to do what Jesus said in John 10.10. 10. You begin living life to the full. Life to the full. Our calling isn't safe in the presence of Jesus, and our excuses about not pursuing our calling aren't safe in the presence of Jesus either. The third thing that isn't safe around and with Jesus around are the people around us. You know, where in the world is he going with this? Well, I'll tell you. 1 Samuel 16, 4, Samuel did what the Lord said. He, when he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him, and they said, do you come in peace? I love that. I love that. Here is this man of God walking up to this town, and the people are uneasy. They come up to, and they have to ask, do you come in peace? Now, why did they ask him that? Well, because this was a man full of the Holy Spirit of God. That's why. It wasn't a pony. They knew someone living in the power of God wasn't, wasn't some type of milquetoast, passive, no-show. Here was a person full of the Holy Spirit of God, the same God that created the Wolverine and the Kodiak bear, who has bestowed his image upon us. And so we are not meant to be trained ponies and milquetoast, passive, no-shows. We are called to be influential around the people around us. He was a person that had the power to upend things. People who are around the true Christian have to always be ready to hear the dangerous message of an awesome God. That's what it means. They, they need to be ready to be awed by stories of risk and adventure that the Holy Spirit of God is taking you on, to be challenged to rethink what they believe to be of utmost importance. So the question is, Catholic Christian Church, do you have the ability to affect the people around you? Do you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you? Do you have the power of the Holy Spirit living within you that allows you to be an influence around the people around you? Um, those of you all that know, any, know uh, anything about me, my, my uh, life m mission statement. I know mission statements are so 1990s, but they work. They, they do work, and they keep you focused on a goal. And 
mine, I spent a lot of time kind of changing them around. I landed on one. It's be influential. That's my life mission. That's my mission statement. Be influential. And I, and I, I developed that after going to an, an AA meeting, an NA meeting, actually, Narcotics Anonymous. I was invited one of the guys who graduated my class who was actually going to come here and speak to us in a couple weeks. Um, he, uh, he was two years sober, and, um, and he invited me to his celebration. And the speaker that day said, do you know why it was that I decided to get clean? It wasn't because the person sitting next to me, my friend, was shot by a bullet intended for me and a drug deal gone bad. It wasn't that. It wasn't the fact, it wasn't the poverty that came with an addiction, addicted lifestyle. It wasn't uh, all the, the problems I caused, uh, this kind of thing. He said, <clears throat> the motivated me to get clean was the fact that every single person that encountered me, from the pizza delivery guy, I can still hear him saying this, the pizza delivery guy to my children to my ex-wife was worse off for having met me. He said, I was like a gigantic black hole that sucked the life and the joy and, and, the, and the purpose out of every person that encountered me. I remember him saying that, and I thought, what if I could be the opposite? What if, and I'm not saying it, it's possible all the time, but what if it was possible for every person that encountered me to be better off for it? What, what would that look like? What would that, what, what would that look like in life to have every single person from the pizza delivery guy to my wife, to my children, to be better off as a result of having encountered me? And that started a lifelong quest to positively influential everywhere I went. That's my life goal. Now, I'm not saying that it happens all the time. I have bad days, and there are peak times I'm, I blow it, and I fall short, and everything like that. I'm not saying that that's perfect, but that's a goal. And for the people around us, what if every person in here had that goal of every single person being better off? Every single person that encountered you, teachers in your classes, classrooms tomorrow, businessmen and businesswomen for your clients tomorrow and through the rest of the week, people that go to school with you, your classmates, what if every single person was better off for having encountered you? What would that look like? See, people are not always going to be safe in our presence because we have the power to be influential. I'm going to invite the band to come on back up and close us out. We live life with the training wheels on. We don't allow God to take them off and send us where he knows we can go. If we continue to keep our five-year-old perspective through life, we're going to miss out on what God has for us. How many of us are going to live our lives in quiet despair, not because we don't have the word of God, not because we don't have passions and abilities and talents, but because we're too afraid to let God use us in the massive, monumental ways that he wants to use us. 
How many of us are going to fritter our life away in meaninglessness when the whole, all the time the whole Holy Spirit of God is saying, why don't you come follow me? Let me take the training wheels off. Stop playing it safe and trust me to take you where you never thought possible. How many of us are going to miss that? Not because we don't love God, but because we're too afraid to take the training wheels off and follow him where he wants to lead us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your calling. Thank you for not being tame. Thank you for not playing it safe. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you call us. Thank you, Lord. Uh, I pray that if there are people out here today that have heard your Holy Spirit this morning, I pray that they would make a commitment. I pray, Father, that this would not be a church where people are, are, are playing it safe. I pray that every person in here, when, the, when they approach other people, they say, do you come in peace? Because these aren't trained ponies, these aren't milk toasts, passive no-shows, these are people who are full of the Holy Spirit of God, who are capable of going on the great adventure. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would hear our praises as we sing them to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand up and let's worship this amazing God who calls us away from what's comfortable and safe.